Let's begin this morning. We have a lot to cover. If you didn't get a handout last week and you want one, we're talking about Arminianism versus Calvinism. Let's do a book giveaway. I haven't done that in a while. I have here God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. Those are related to church history. At some point, this comes into church history. I don't know that we'll get to that necessarily in this class, but this is by Costi Hinn. This is Benny Hinn's nephew who was saved out of the prosperity gospel and became a pastor, and now he preaches the word. Just planted a church somewhere in Arizona. I forget where. He wrote this book a few years ago, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. He used to travel with his uncle, Benny Hinn, and he got to see behind the scenes what was really going on. So let's see. I got to think of a good question. Some of you guys weren't here last week, so... Let me think of a more broad question so we can... What year did the Reformation officially start? Oh, Jessica. 1517. All right, you win. Here, give that to her. All right, have you read that book? I know you read like 100 books a day, so excellent. That'll save your book budget for the month. You can buy an extra book now. All right, well, let me pray and we'll get back to church history. Lord, thank you so much for our time to be here this morning. The sun is shining. We're breathing air. We're being blessed with your goodness every moment, every second. And we're thankful to be here in the church, gathering together later for worship, but even to study for these equipping classes this morning. Both the adults and the children, we're so grateful that we can study, think through, and understand more about your word. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is important to give thanks for church history because in the history of the church, there's been a lot of bad theology And thankfully, God always preserves a remnant of good theology, a remnant of of true believers and and false believers. But even amongst true believers, there's different theological ideas that arise. And some aren't heretical necessarily, that they'll send you to hell if you believe them. But they do end up leading people astray in the sense of sanctification or watering down the gospel. So we always want to look at major movements in church history. And uh, one of those is the Arminian theology that arrives in the 1600s. Remember I told you that the Reformation happens in the 1500s. 1517, Jessica just said, that's right, Martin Luther nails the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door, and that's the official start today. We look back and say that's when it started, but he wasn't thinking, you know, I'm starting the Reformation, and 500 years from now they'll celebrate this. He was just disputing and arguing theological points, That eventually turns into a major movement. Then he begins writing and preaching about justification through faith alone and Christ alone. And so that becomes the Reformation. Calvin comes along. He writes the books on theology that become very popular for training pastors. And so in the 1500s, I said last week, you're either going to be more of the Lutheran Reformed, um, bent Protestant, or the Calvin Zwingli Reformed Protestant method, or you might say uh, arm of the Reformation. So there's two big arms, Luther and his followers, Calvin and Zwingli and their followers. And they pretty much agree on the major stuff like the gospel, election, predestination, perseverance of the saints. These aren't really under debate. I'm sure there's, there's Catholics who come along and debate it, but there's nobody that calls himself a Protestant that's making a big fuss about it. Until Calvin dies, And then Arminius gets trained under his successor. And I mentioned last week, so here's the three guys that we typically think of as the the big Reformed men, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. But Calvin's successor at the uh, seminary there in Geneva is Theodore Beza. And Beza tries to stay as faithful to Calvin as he can, but we never know quite sure sometimes if he's expressing his own views or just saying, you know, this was what Calvin believed, but but Calvin didn't necessarily believe some of those. It's sometimes debatable. But for the most part, Beza is just following in the teachings that Calvin taught his pastors and his congregation. And a man named Arminius comes along and studies under Theodore Beza. And when he leaves, this is always how it happens, because you go to a conservative seminary, you agree with it. Then when you leave, some people, like, who was the guy that, that went to Master's Seminary? And then later he wrote some books, got famous, and now he's really woke, and he writes some books. Then he just up and leaves his church, says he's going on the mission field, but doesn't. Ends up in San Francisco, starts a house church movement. Now he's 
I don't know if he's Catholic, Greek Orthodox, mixture of all of the above. So anyway, so Arminius uh, doesn't like some of the things he learned there. So he goes back to his home country, to the Dutch lowland country, and begins teaching in the university there. But he was teaching his own view on many of these issues of salvation. Nobody's making a big fuss because it's just a few college students. But then those college students graduate and they become pastors, some of them. And now it becomes an issue because the Spanish have been attacking and trying to take this country, the country of the Dutch, and today we would just say Holland, but they're trying to take over that. And they had signed a truce, a treaty, and that gave them about 12 years, roughly, of peace before the fighting started again. But the, the Dutch government is very concerned that the Armenians will side with the Spanish. So now it becomes political, and eventually they call a... A large group together of pastors and theologians. Here it is, the Synod of Dort. And the Synod of Dort is various pastors from around Europe, mostly from the Dutch countries, but also from Geneva, also a few from England as well. And the issue at stake is what Arminius taught. So he taught these five points. Before there were the five points of Calvinism, there was the five points of Arminianism. And his followers were zealous about these points. So they said, no total depravity is not in the Bible. The man is able to exercise faith of his own ability. Secondly, irresistible grace is not in the Bible. They said, God's grace can be rejected. They said that limited atonement or what we would call particular redemption is not taught in the Bible. That was intended for all people. Fourthly, they said... That unconditional election is not taught in the Bible, particularly predestination, we might say another word for it. That it's conditional. It's really about God seeing the future and not so much about God choosing of his own free will. And then lastly, they said that, that saints don't persevere in the faith. Believers can lose their salvation. So this was upsetting churches, upsetting some Christians, and the government even was a bit upset. So they held this synod of Dort. They examined Arminius's teachings. And they found them to be against the Bible. They didn't declare them heretics necessarily. They didn't burn them at the stake. They just said, you can't teach this anymore because this is upsetting people, upsetting churches, upsetting the teaching that we've had as a country, they said, since the Reformation. The Armenian pastors eventually said they wouldn't stop. And so they kicked them out of the country and they took their teaching elsewhere. But again, no one is necessarily promoting this on a broad level until the English pick it up much later, late 1600s, 17, early 1700s. It becomes very popular. They export it to America. And what does America do with everything? They really market it. And so Arminianism in the 1800s becomes the predominant view by the end of the 1800s. Before that, guess what the predominant theological view is on these issues in America? It's a Calvinistic viewpoint. They don't teach you that in school, especially in history class. You think the Puritans came just because they were persecuted. Well, no, the Puritans came because they believed in following the Bible in their worship and in their theology. And the king of England, which we'll cover this later, but the king of England kicked them out and they ended up in America. That meant everyone in America for the next almost 200 years believed very similarly to those Puritans. All right, so back to Arminius. Um, he's dead. The Synod of Dort gets held. The Arminian pastors get booted out. So here's where the five points that we call today the five points of Calvinism. Here's where they come from. They come from the Synod of Dort responding to the five points of Arminianism. These come to be known as the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. So what we were doing last week is going through these five and comparing them. Five points of Arminianism, five points of Calvinism. And I don't think we made it very far because I, I started preaching to you. But here's the handout. So we're working through these verses. We're looking at these two. This is a historical issue, but it's still an issue in the church today as churches have to decide. Preachers, pastors, elders, churches' doctrinal statements have to line up usually on one or the other. Now, many today will not state in writing what their church teaches, but you will often hear it if they're going verse by verse through the Bible because you simply cannot ignore Ephesians 1 or Romans 8 and 9 or 1 Peter 1. So if a pastor is preaching verse by verse, 
They have to decide on what these words mean, on what these doctrines mean. So we began last week by looking at this issue of, it's, we often say it's about free will, but it's not. Both sides talk about free will. It's really about the ability of a person before they're saved to make the first step towards God, towards salvation. And so the Arminian says that sin does not control man's will. That he's more along the lines of someone who's sick and nearsighted, but he still has the ability to obey. He still has the ability to repent, believe. He does not need to be regenerated by God in order to believe the gospel. So this is man's ability at a natural state. In a natural state. Yes, the Arminian says he's affected by sin, but not so badly that he can't make the first move. That he can't make the first step. He's just sick in his bed, and a sick person can still get up. They can still go eat. They can still go to the restroom. All these things that a person can do. Well, the, the Calvinistic view, the view that was the common view up until Arminius' followers started teaching a different view, is that sin controls every part of man, including his heart, his mind, and his will. So yes, there is a free will, but it's bound. And we'll see this in Romans 6. It's bound. There is a limit to the person's will because it's bound by sin. He is spiritually dead, blind, unable to obey, believe, or repent. Man does not have the ability or power in himself to savingly believe in the gospel. Now people say, well, that's Calvinism. Well, we looked at the verses we saw in Genesis 5, how you know, mankind is evil continually in his heart. Uh, we looked at uh, the psalm. I think we went through all of these. Jeremiah 17, 9. Uh, Jesus said, all these sins come from the heart. And Romans 3, 9. There's none righteous. No, not one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says very clearly that we're dead in our transgressions. Dead. And spiritually dead. He's talking about needing to be made alive. And then you get to verse 4 of Ephesians 2, and it says, But God made us alive. So the person's dead, and then they're made alive, not by their own actions first, but by God doing something. And so the focus is on God. You get to 2, 8, 9 of Ephesians, and it says, By God's grace you have been saved. He's trying to make it really clear that the Ephesians ought to give thanks to God, not to themselves. They cannot credit themselves with salvation. And really, this isn't, Calvin's not the first person to point this out. Augustine pointed it out in the 400s. Augustine wrote a lot on this. Man's depravity, man's sin. Catholic Church will often refer to original sin. It's better just to think of it as inherited sin nature. We're born with an inherited sin nature. And that makes us a totally depraved person. Totally is not, in historical speech, it's not meaning that you're doing all the sin you can all the time. Total means whole. The whole person. Because sometimes we think, well, that's, you know, that's my body that has those desires that are sinful. But my mind is pure before I'm a Christian. No, your mind is sinful too. And we looked at that in Romans 1. A depraved mind. Sometimes we think, well, my, my soul is pure. You know, it's the rest of me that's evil when I'm an unbeliever. No, the Bible makes it clear it's your whole person. Everything. That's why Jesus said that the Christian, the believer, ought to love the Lord with everything that he is. His heart, his mind, his soul, all his strength. The unbeliever can't do that. And so we covered that, total depravity. And then we looked at the issue of election. And I think that's, we almost got through election, but I'll read both these boxes here. The Arminian view is that God chose the elect on the basis of their foreseen faith. By seeing from eternity past that they would respond to his call. Their election is thus determined by God seeing what man would do, and God responds to that. They do not deny the word election is in the Bible. You cannot deny the word election is there. Sometimes Christians today will try to do that. They'll try to say, I don't believe in election. Well, if you're a Christian, you do, if you believe the Bible, because there it is. And I had this conversation when we first moved here to, to plant the church. A guy was coming by to do some work on the house. What kind of church are you planting, he asked. And, and he's a Christian, very zealous, he said. And I said, well, we're planting a Bible church. And he said, oh, I think I've heard about you guys. Y'all believe in predestination. 
I said, well, of course we do. It's in the Bible. And he says, no, no, it's not in the Bible. I don't believe that. And I said, well, let's sit down and have a Bible study. So we spent about an hour doing a Bible study. I guess he had plenty of time to, to sit there on the back porch. And we looked at Ephesians 1, and we looked at Romans 8 and 9. He said, okay, it's there. Election's there. But it's not what you think it means, he said. And he went on to talk about how it's God foreseeing the future. So a true Arminian will acknowledge election and predestination in the Bible. They're there. The question is, what do those words mean? And the Arminian says, it's really just God looking into the future, and then he responds to what you are going to do in the future. Uh, the Calvinist view is unconditional election. It's not conditioned on what you do. It's just God's free choice, God's free grace. God chose the elect solely on the basis of his free grace, not anything that he foresaw in them. God would only have foreseen rebellion in them. And if we are understanding the total depravity, that's what God would have seen. He would have just seen us continue to rebel against him if he doesn't do something. God has a special love for the elect. The rest were passed over to be justly condemned for their sin and rebellion against God. We're going to see these things develop throughout the book of Romans. So stay with us over the next, how many years? Five years? Six years? Don't go anywhere. If the Lord takes you home, then you'll know all this theology perfectly. But until then, stay with us because we're going to go through this verse by verse, passage by passage. And you'll see this develop. But the, the issue here, though, is that if we are depraved and cannot make the first step towards God, then God has to do something or no one's going to be saved. Now, he doesn't have to because we say he has to. He has to of his own love, his own free will. If he's going to save a people, he's got to do it. It's up to him. It's not up to us. That does not mean we don't make a choice. Sometimes the language kind of gets confusing because we, we throw terms out we don't understand or people use them differently. Because God elects does not mean the person doesn't respond in faith. It doesn't mean we're robots. Sometimes that's a sort of an Arminian argument. Well, you're saying we're robots. We don't have free will. No, the Bible I believe, and, and Calvinists teach that God has ultimate free will, and then we don't. So whatever kind of will we have, it's not like God's. God's the ultimate determiner of what will happen. He's already determined what will happen in time. Therefore, we give Him that praise and glory for determining all things, and He's good, and He's loving, and He's perfect. Thankfully, He does choose an elect. He does choose a people. Otherwise, the Bible says no one would be saved. Y'all been through Romans 1, right? What does it say? All are under the wrath of God. And then he goes through and proves it. And today we're going to start with a Jew in chapter 2 and all the way through chapter 3. Then he ends up in chapter 3 just saying, one more time, there's none righteous, not one, not the nicest person that you've ever heard of in your life or seen. Ultimately, they are not doing everything they do for the glory of God unless they're saved. And even people who are saved don't do every single thing for the glory of God. So the point is, unconditional election is that we don't earn it. God chooses. Why does he choose? That's the problem. We're kind of, sometimes we're prideful and we want to know why. Why does God choose certain people and not these people? Well, he's God. He does it for his own purposes. He does it according to his own good purposes. That's all the Bible tells us. It's for His glory, and it's for His own good purposes. Read Ephesians 1. After that, we're out in the weeds. We're speculating on the reason God chooses people. We cannot say we're smarter. We're smarter God chose us because we're so great. Well, again, that puts us on conditional election. Now we're saying God responds to something we did. Oh, we were so holy before we were saved. That's why God chose us. The Bible says, no, you're not. And secondly, God would be responding to something we did. So when it, when it comes to the decision on who will be saved, the Bible says it happened before time began. And I think that's where we left off. Did we look at Ephesians 1 last week? All right, we're going to Ephesians 1. So let's just look. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So he's going to list the blessings, the main ones, the big ones, in the rest of this paragraph. It's all one sentence in Greek, from 3 all the way down to verse 14. Here's the first one that happened. Just as he chose us, that's election, he chose us to be in Christ 
before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So He chose us. That's what He did. The ultimate goal of that choosing is to bring about a holy people. They're blameless before God at the judgment. Why did He do it? It says, in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. A lot of people want to talk about human free will. That's the main thing that philosophers want to talk about. That's what people are most concerned about today. My will, my desires. This talks about God's will. What about God's free will? Does God have free will? Yes, of course. Is God's free will greater than our free will? Yes. Thankfully, because it says it was according to His will that He saved us to the praise of His glory. So that's the purpose, to praise Him, to glorify Him. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption. So now he goes into the purchase through the blood of Christ of these same people that God elected. And then he finishes out the paragraph talking about the Holy Spirit sealing and preserving the same group that God elected, Christ came to redeem. Now also let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. These are the main verses in this handout. This does not cover every single possible verse that would touch on these doctrines. To do that, I do have a document that I've just been accumulating these verses over the years, but we would be here for weeks if we covered every verse. So we're looking at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen. Really, the, the Greek word is elected. God has chosen. That, that's the same thing as elected, but it's, it's more straightforward when we just say elected you from the beginning for salvation. And then if we continue on, let's look at 1 Peter 1-2. So Peter here is writing to all the Christians throughout this certain part of the world, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. So how are they chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ to be sprinkled with His blood. Now foreknowledge in English can throw us off a bit. We can say, well there it is. God looked forward in time. Well if you get into that word, that's not what it means. It means, and we see this again in Romans 8. Let's go back to Romans 8.28. What it means is a very close loving relationship. In other words, the idea is out of His love... He chose out of his loving relationship with the person in his view, in his decree that he will create in the future. He chose. So we're looking at 828 and notice it's the same group all the way through here. And we know that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So God has a purpose for calling people. It's a good purpose. And who are these people? Verse 29 For those whom he foreknew. There's the idea of the foreknowledge again. And if you study out the words here, you should always do word studies on things like this. In the New Testament, you'll find word like knew being used for Joseph did not know Eve in that way before Jesus was born. He did not know her. Adam knew Eve and they had a son. She became pregnant. The idea is a close, intimate relationship. So if you foreknow the close, intimate relationship, it's not a knowledge in the brain that he's talking about, but he's foreloving. He's foredeciding to love, in other words. The word know kind of throws us off in English. We just think of knowledge. But sometimes know, especially in the ancient world, is one of a close relationship. God determined ahead of time that he would love a certain people. Then he elected them, it says, in the next step. He set them aside. He chose them. Then it goes on to say, he calls them in time. That's when he divinely calls them to come to faith. Those people are justified. Those people are glorified. Same group all the way through. All right, is that all the verses? Yeah, unconditional. So that's kind of covering what we looked at last week. Those are the two different views. Now, I only have verses for the Calvinist side. You know, an Arminian might say, well... There are verses to support our view. Really, there's not a lot you can put on the other side. There are only verses that attempt to show objections to the ones on the Calvinist side. People say John 3.16. Well, it doesn't actually say in John 3.16 that God responds to our 
first steps, that God looks forward in time. John 3.16 is typically brought up to show, look, Christ died for the whole world, everybody, therefore God must, therefore, choose everybody. Well, that doesn't really work. The whole meaning of election gets destroyed at that point. So we don't really have time to go through all the objections. That's probably more of a systematic theology class. But I understand those objections are out there. I understand that people bring those up. And that's fine. We can um, probably talk about those when we have a lot more time to do so. I might bring up a few objections along the way, though. All right, let's get to limited atonement. So this is really better a discussion of redemption. Atonement, the word limited, it kind of throws us around. Just think of the question, who did Christ come to give his sacrifice for? Okay, that's, that's the real question. It's not about limiting God. It's not about trying to decide who God has already chosen. The question is, for whom did Christ come to the earth to sacrifice himself for? Who did that pay for? What was the intent? The Arminian says it's very universal. It's very general. He died equally for all men. He paid a provisional price. That's the key word there. Provisional price that made salvation possible, another key word, for all, but guaranteed it for none. So look at what they're saying. They're saying it's provisional. It's there, but it may not be used. It's provided, and it's possible. It might happen, but it doesn't actually guarantee it for anyone. The Calvinist view, what Calvin taught, what I think Luther taught, some argue Luther didn't teach this. It's pretty clear Calvin did, and following up through the Puritans all the way until Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Sproul today, or recently MacArthur, John Piper. Christ died, especially for the elect, and he paid a definite price for them that guaranteed their salvation. So it's very definite. It was a transaction that occurred. And it guaranteed. That's the key thing. Sometimes people get into debates about the number of people Christ died for. How many will be saved? And who are we to say that people won't be saved? Now the question is, who did Christ come to die for? Whatever the Bible says, that's what I want to believe. And how I do evangelism is informed by that, but I still have to do evangelism. So we'll talk about evangelism when we come around to it in a moment. But Christ died especially for the elect. Let's look at John 6. I recently heard a great session on this at the Shepherds Conference. And I wish I had time to go through all of that. Mike Riccardi did a breakout on definite atonement and the Trinity. John 6.35. Got to get there myself. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So there's some who believe and there's some who do not believe. But the ones who come to him know that they will receive salvation. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to purchase it. It's already been paid for. That's the idea. It hasn't happened yet. But anyone who comes to him is not going to hunger or worry or be confused about that. Let's keep reading here. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So notice the same group the Father gives are the ones who will come to Him. What do we call the group that the Father is going to give to Him? Well, God's already called them the elect, the chosen. So those that the Father has elected are the ones who are going to come to Jesus. And the ones who come to me will certainly, I will certainly not cast out. So they will come and He's never going to lose them. He says, I've come down from heaven, and this is important here, not to do my own will. He's not come to make the decision to expand God's choice, right? God's elected these people, but Jesus didn't come and said, you know what, Lord, I've changed my mind. I'm going to die for the whole world and purchase the redemption for everyone. And you're elect, that's great, that's a great plan, but I've got a bigger plan. No, he says, it's not my will, but it's the will of him who sent me. In other words, his will aligns with the Father's will. This is the will of him who sent me. That all of that he has given me, I lose nothing. Who are, who are those that God has given to the Son? Well, it's what we call in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 and 9, the chosen, the elect. This, that's the God's will that he will not lose any of them. All of them will be saved. They're definitely going to be purchased. 
at the cross. And he will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. All right, so we are in John 10 now. So I think the biggest argument for a definite particular redemption is that argument we just read of the Trinity not being split into parts. But the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have the same mind when it comes to salvation. Christ didn't die for a different group than God chose. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come to seal a different group than the Father chose. There's not three different workings out of salvation in the Trinity. There's one. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working in all the different areas the Bible says they do to bring that about. Mike Riccardi made a good point. He said, when it comes to the creation of the world, we know that the Father was participating, the Holy Spirit was participating, the Son was participating. All of the Trinity is there participating in the creation of the world. And how many worlds do we get? One, not three worlds, right? The Spirit didn't say, I'm going to create a world. The Father didn't say, I'm going to create a world. The Son didn't say, I'm going to create a world. There's one world, and they're all working there in Genesis 1 to do that. The Word is there. The Spirit is hovering over the waters, not just observing, but participating. It's the same in salvation. There's not three groups. There's not two groups that are saved or are in mind when it comes to salvation. There's one. 10.3 To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. He's talking about the great shepherd. He leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. They know his voice. They're responding to him, not the other way around. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So it's the person, the shepherd's voice that is in view here. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Who are the sheep here? Well, they're God's chosen, God's people, God's elect. They don't hear false messiahs and prophets. They're looking for the great shepherd. I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Skip to verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. So he's very clear here. He lays down his life for that group called the sheep. He who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, so he runs off, he flees. Um, verse 14 I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He talks about other sheep. It's not just within the Jewish community, but he has Gentile sheep throughout the world. Not of the fold that he's preaching in right there. I must bring them on also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. He talks about his resurrection. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So again, he's doing the Father's will. He's going to lay down his life for the sheep. The sheep follow him. The sheep come after him because they hear his voice. He calls them. We'll come to calling in a moment. But he calls them. They follow him. It's not up to them. It doesn't say, you know, the sheep are just out searching for a shepherd. Is that what sheep, is that what sheep do? Do they go out looking for their shepherd? Now the shepherd's got to go grab them and hook them with the shepherd's staff and drag them back, you know. The sheep are kicking and they don't want to come. They, sheep aren't smart. They just wander off into the ditch somewhere. Have you seen the video where they, somewhere in like the Middle East, and there's this trench that they dug for some pipeline, and it's just wide enough that an animal like a sheep could fall in and get stuck. Sheep falls in. These guys are there. They, they finally get the sheep out. Sheep gets scared, takes off running three steps, jumps back into the ditch. 
get stuck again. That's what sheep do. They don't come to the shepherd. They, they run away and do their own thing. Shepherd has to go get them. That's why Jesus is using the analogy over and over here. So we're uh, Acts 20:28. 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. There's that language again. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased. Who? God purchased. We're talking here about really God the Son purchased with his own blood. The blood of Christ is reference to his death. That's a reference to his atonement on the cross. Who did he purchase with that? Well, he purchased the church, the church of God. We keep going here. Let's go to Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. He died for the church. He died for the church. He died for those that God has elected. Hebrews 9.15. we got to do Revelation 5. I, that's not in here. I think Phil Johnson is the one who made this. i got to tell Phil, look, you got a lot of more verses you can put here. Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place, this is Christ. He's the mediator. A death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Those who have been called by God. Who are the ones called by God? We saw in Romans 8.29, that's the ones that God has predestined. So God has predestined to people, and then He calls them. And this verse is saying Jesus died for them, and He is now their mediator. They entered into this new covenant with God. Let's go to Revelation 5. This is one of my favorites here. So 5, uh, 9. This is the scene in heaven. And the 24 elders are there. And all of this great host of uh, angelic beings, the elders, all the martyrs are going to join in pretty soon and sing a song. The song is, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. So this is the book, once it's broken, that will bring about the events of the end times. For you were slain and purchased. So here's that redemption language. Purchased for God with your blood. Talking about the Lamb, the Messiah. Purchased with your blood, with your death. Men from... And it's from out of is the idea. It's very clear in Greek, from out of. But even in English, it's from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's not every person of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's from out of them. And so Christ's death has purchased a people. But those people come from out of all the people groups of the world. Now, sometimes people will say, well, this doctrine here really kills evangelism. All these doctrines, people say, kills evangelism. Because why would you go evangelize if God has already chosen? And why would you tell people to come to Christ if He's only died for the elect? Well, let's just stop and think about it. First of all, do we know who the elect are? If you have assurance of your own salvation, then you can pretty much you know, trust in the fact that you're the elect as far as or you're the one person that is elect. But we don't know who else is elect. And God's saving people all the time because the world is still spinning and we're still here and the Lord hasn't come back yet. So he tells us to take the gospel out and we don't know who the elect are. So if you put those two things together, what that means is we are to go proclaim the gospel and God will bring in the people that he has chosen through our proclamation, through our missionary work. I mean, Charles Spurgeon said if if God marked them with an E on their back of their head, you know, that'd save him a lot of trouble. He could just look for those marks. But he was joking, of course. He was, he was making fun of this objection that we can't believe this doctrine because it doesn't work for our evangelistic methods. No, we, we go to the Bible, and then we fix our messed up evangelistic methods and make them according to the Bible. So here's, here's what happens. You go out there, and John MacArthur calls this the theology of sleep. You just tell people the gospel. And then you go home and sleep at night because it's not up to you if they believe or not. Right? That's God's working in their heart. And that does really help because if you're worried all the time 
and you think it's on you, and you think people are going to go to hell because you didn't present a persuasive enough gospel, you didn't get them up here and just slam them at the, at the anxious bench like Charles Finney does in the 1800s, or today they have the come forward to the altar, you know. And it's not on you. It's just on you to tell the truth and make it as clear and plain as possible. And if you stand before the church and, you know, you're a man preaching, then it's on you to, to be clear and passionate in that. But if you're just talking to your friend about Christ and the gospel, just be clear, just be biblical, and keep going back if they don't believe and keep praying for them. But it's not, it's not up to you to convince them. You can't change a person's heart. God changes hearts. Our job is to go out and proclaim the truth. We're not God. We're not changing hearts. If God has chosen them, He's set a specific time that they will hear, and maybe that's through us. And then we can celebrate. Thank you, Lord, for letting me participate in my children's salvation or or my friend's salvation. But ultimately, we can't credit ourselves with that. You know, man, I twisted my kids' arms so they believed. That's not going to be very good for them. They're just more likely going to be a false convert. I prayed for them. I gave them the gospel. God changed their heart. They believed. They repented. That's the way the Bible talks. Let's look at limited atonement. Well, I just read to you out of uh, Revelation 5. Do you know the first modern missionary? The first modern missionary, William Carey. We have a, a, one or two biographies on him in the bookstore. Missions had kind of stopped during the Middle Ages because the Roman Catholic view was, okay, now that we're, we Christianize Europe, we're pretty much all Christians, they thought, all saved. And occasionally we'll send somebody to the Native Americans or we'll send somebody to the Muslims. But that was the extent of missions. The, the reformers sent some people, by the way, but they're also just trying to survive in Europe at the time as people are killing them. William Carey in the 1700s says, you know what, I want to take the gospel to India. And his denomination was a particular Baptist. So they were Calvinistic Baptists, but they had become hyper-Calvinistic, meaning they thought, you know what, if God has chosen people, they'll just walk through our door. We don't have to go find them. We don't have to go out. The hyper-Calvinists says they'll just show up because God has chosen them and he'll just make them walk through the door. Then they'll get saved here in the church. We don't need to send people anywhere. I mean, who would want to send people to India anyway? A bunch of heathens there, they're going to kill you and eat you alive. Well, that was the view. Now, there are still a few hyper-Calvinists around, but not many. Sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, you believe this stuff on the right? You're a hyper-Calvinist. No, that's not true. Hyper-Calvinist believes we don't do anything to proclaim the gospel, except within the body, they have to come in. Well, William Carey said, I'm going to India because of this verse right here. God has chosen and already purchased people. He's already paid for them. They're out there, and they're from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So I'm going to India. He went to India. He got the money to go. The churches finally came around and supported him, and he started a church there. And there are still people in India today thanking the denomination Thankful that William Carey went. I just saw, I think it was yesterday, there was a a post on Facebook about William Carey, and there were people from India just saying, we're so thankful he came. We're so thankful he started the church. They're not talking about, you know, these white men, they come to India and they spread their culture, and what's all this colonialism? No, they're saying thank you that he came. And he came because of this verse, which is a verse that focuses on Uh, Both worship in heaven, but also mentions particular redemption. Irresistible grace. So the Arminian view is that grace is resistible. Saving grace is resistible, for God does not overrule man's free will. Man is born again after he believes. God's grace can be, and often is, thwarted by man. I think the confusion here is that we know people who hear the gospel, and they don't believe. And so we sometimes think, well, God's grace was thwarted. That's not the kind of grace that we're talking about here. Let's look at the irresistible grace on the right. The Calvinist view, saving grace is irresistible, for the Holy Spirit is invincible and intervenes in man's heart. While an outward general call to salvation is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. So we have to distinguish between what goes out and what goes on in the heart. Those are two different things. Jesus said, many are called, but few are what? Chosen. He's saying there's two different groups. Many hear the call to come, 
That's the spoken call. But few are actually going to come. Those are the ones that God has chosen, the ones that God works in their heart to come. We don't have time to go through all of these. Let's just look at John 3. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He has some questions for this Messiah who's going around teaching, stirring up trouble. Nicodemus just wants to know what's going on. John 3, 3. So, so Nicodemus basically says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God. No one can do miracles like this unless you've come from God. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus just cuts right to the point. He's not messing around here. He just goes to say, look, you got to be born again. You have to be born again. You can't even see the kingdom. You're not going to be in the kingdom unless you've been born again. Nicodemus says, kind of a smart aleck, I think, here. How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, I think water there is just cleansing, the cleansing that's spoken of in the New Covenant, and the Spirit, that's regeneration by the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 6 now talks about the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The reason he talks about the wind, it's a play on words, because the word for wind in Greek is the same as the word for spirit. And he's saying, you can't control the wind, and you don't know where it's going. In other words, translates, you don't know who God is going to save. You don't know how the Holy Spirit's going to work in people's lives. You can't control that. Preachers today try to control that. They think they can control that. They have these big events trying to control that, but they can't. Our job is to just proclaim the gospel. And Jesus says, people will be born of the Spirit if they are chosen of God. That's the implication. If you put all of John together here. Let's look at one more here. Um, Let's look at 637 through 40. See, it's not just Romans. It's not just Paul. But the gospel of John, which is Jesus preaching. Also talks about these doctrines. 637 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So we've already looked at this. Who's coming? All of them. All the elect are going to come. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will. Here's the will of God. That all he has given me I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. So he's doing the Father's will. They're going to come to him. Verse 45, this is one we haven't looked at. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. God changes their heart. He calls them with a divine call. We're going to see calling come up over and over in Romans. Paul talks about it right away in the beginning of Romans. He said, I've been called to be an apostle. That's a divine calling of God for his apostleship. But there's also one for all people. Who are saved. Okay, last one. um, Perseverance of the saints. We've already looked at some passages in John that Jesus says, I'm not going to lose any of them. The Arminian says, those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. Now, some Arminians are kind of divided, but a true classical Arminian says, you can lose your salvation. The more Southern Baptist today, the Southern Baptist Arminian um, category would say, this is the only one they would disagree with Arminius on. They would say, once saved, always saved. But the first four of Arminius' points, they would agree with. The Calvinist side says that the believers will be preserved or persevere. God keeps and he preserves all the elect and causes them to persevere in the faith and obedience to the end. Though they may for a time backslide, none of the elect are finally lost in the end. We looked at Romans 8, 28. And that goes all the way through the end of Romans 8 to say none will be lost. It doesn't matter if trials and tribulations and Satan and God himself is not going to go against his own choice to save people, is he? The people who are chosen, who are redeemed, who are called cannot lose their salvation. Again, people say, well, that can't be true. I know so and so they denied the faith. Well, if we believe what the passages say on that, what that means is the person wasn't actually a Christian to begin with. 
And if you think about it, we've all known folks who say they're Christians, but they, later they deny it. They say, I never was. They say, I was just trying to please my parents, the church. We've had people that are here today in this church who at one time said they were a Christian, found out later they weren't, and now they're here today because they have truly been born again. So that is not God failing on His promises. That's just a person not being saved in the first place, thinking they were, and then actually being saved later. All right, so that's Arminianism. I think I have a summary slide here. So this is a summary slide that someone has put together. Uh, Salvation is accomplished through the combined efforts of God, who takes the initiative, and man, who must respond. Man's response being the determining factor. That's the key part of Arminianism. Man's a determining factor there. God has provided salvation for everyone, but His provision becomes effective only for those who of their own free will choose to cooperate with Him and accept His offer of grace. At the crucial point, man's will plays a decisive role. So it's about choice, will. Thus man, not God, determines who will be recipients of the gift of salvation. According to Calvinism, salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. Father chose a people, the Son died for them, the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith and repentance, thereby causing them to willingly obey the gospel. The entire process, election, redemption, regeneration, is the work of God and is by grace alone. Thus, God, not man, determines who will be the recipients of the gift of salvation. Here's where these quotes come from. Five points of Calvinism, defined, defended, and documented. We should have one in the bookstore, but it might be sold out. Um, It's a great book that goes through all of these points in more detail. So should we still do evangelism? Yes. Why? The Bible calls us to, and we don't know who the elect are. That's enough for me. I mean, you could could maybe extrapolate some more reasons, but that's more than enough for me. The Bible tells us so is enough. We don't know who the elect are. This, really, this whole list is in the Bible for one main reason. To give comfort to believers. Every time it comes up, it's not to go preach to unbelievers the five points of Calvinism. It's to comfort believers and to understand where you came from. You were totally depraved and God did something. You should thank Him. You didn't choose yourself. God did it. You should glorify and thank Him. Christ died for you. You should obey Him, thank Him, glorify Him, praise Him, worship Him. God called you. You didn't call yourself. You're not better than your neighbor and your family members who aren't saved. And God will persevere you, not you. You're not, you didn't work to get in, and you're not going to work to stay in. God will do it. You work out of your love for the Lord and what He's done for you. All done there. We will come back to it at certain points a little bit throughout church history as it comes up, particularly with the revivalism that happens in America. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the wonderful doctrines in Scripture. We know that men later, people attach names to these doctrines. But we, first of all, want to go to Scripture, see what's there. If later men get associated with that, we'll honor them, Lord, because you've honored them. But ultimately, we want to be worshiping you for what you've done and following your word and trying to study and seek the teaching there. So I do pray that we would do that here as a church, that we would not follow a man, but follow you and use the men in church history and their writings to help us understand the Bible better. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.